0: Open your Bibles to John, the 20th chapter, verses 24 through 29. John 20, verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas called the twin. One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands And put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed.
1: In 1986, on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, in Israel, the remains of a boat was found. It was found as uh, the result of a drought that had happened. The seas had receded back from the bank, and there in the mud, two brothers had found this boat. Because of the mud encasing the boat, it had not rotted down to where it had simply disappeared, and they had pulled this boat from the mud. It was made from cypress wood. It had been repaired with different types of wood, but it was a boat that had been used from about uh, somewhere between 40 BC all the way up until about 50 AD. And it was a fishing boat. And they could date this boat because of a uh, cooking pot that was found in it and a lamp. Now it's interesting because of the way that this boat was made. Now this boat was called the ancient Galilee boat or the Jesus boat. Now the only connection it had to Jesus was the time period in which it was used. It was used during the time frame that Jesus walked the earth and His disciples walked the earth. But this boat was made and put together using wooden pegs and nails using Roman nails. Now, we don't often think about uh, the, this time frame of things being put together necessarily by nails, usually more of a wooden peg or something like this, but this thing was found and it was used or built using nails. The same with uh, yokes. A yoke of oxen, of course a yoke was used and uh, a yoke was built and it was used... Uh, by placing a wooden halter on the animal's neck, pegs uh, two on each side with the neck of the animal between them, and they were tacked to the halter from underneath using nails. And these things were built by a craftsman. Now, when we think of this idea of nails being used during that time, the word nail or nails themselves, when we're talking about in the sense of a spike or a stud, found 17 times in the Bible, but only twice in the New Testament. Only two times, specifically the word nail or nails, found twice in the New Testament. It's in the passage read before us this morning. Of course, a nail is used in building something, holding something together. And when we think of nails, we think of carpentry. We think of building homes or houses or tables or chairs or doors or something of that nature. And uh, of course, over time, people have thought of Jesus as being a carpenter. And that's for a good reason, because that's what He's described as in the New Testament. Of course, He was a builder. And after having taught in the synagogue on the Sabbath, those in Nazareth asked this question, Mark 6 verse 3, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Of course, his father Joseph, his adopted father, the father who was his earthly father who raised this boy from a, from a child into adulthood, who was likely the person who trained him to be a carpenter who was himself a carpenter he is described in that manner in Matthew 13:55 as the carpenter's son now this word carpenter is tekton in the greek and it can be translated as carpenter or a myriad of different ways but really what it means is a fabricator That can be a fabricator of wood, or of stone, or of metal, or of any number of things. But when you look at the word itself, and you look at that very first uh, definition of it, it says a fabricator of wood. And so for all these many years, I have looked at this word carpenter, and I have considered Jesus more as a stonemason, because you look at the the area in which he lived, and you think, well, he probably was a, a layer of foundations, and he would have helped to build homes or things of that uh, uh, manner, but really what he was was he was a fabricator, and he very likely was probably a stonemason, but he was a fabricator very likely of wood, and he may, very well may have built boats, or he may have built yoke, or tables? He might have been the person that someone might have called him, his father, and said, hey, we need to build a home. Or we need a table builder, Or we need this door built. Or we need a fishing boat. Or it needs to be repaired. or, Or something of that nature. But he was an artificer. He was a craftsman. He was a skilled laborer. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what it meant to put things together to build. But he was a builder, wasn't he? He was a builder. Whether he was a worker of wood or stone, or likely both, he was a fabricator. Again, he may have laid the foundations of houses, he may have constructed fishing boats using wooden pegs or nails, so it's logical to believe, again, that he knew how things fit together. That's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting to know a little bit into the the life of the Savior of the world. Now, there were nails used to place Jesus on the cross, and He would have had an intimate relationship and a knowledge of how nails were used. And so when it came time to place Him on the cross, they would have used three or four nails to have done that. They would have placed a nail through His wrist. Now, the wrist is a part of the hand. So, one on each hand. Now, they may have used one nail to nail His feet to the cross, placing one foot on top of the other, going down through the top of the foot. Or, they could have used one nail on either side, going through the ankle joint, not breaking a bone, but going through the ankle bone, or the ankle joint, rather, into the side of the cross after having hung Him up there. They could have done that. But He would have known what it meant for something to be put together. Now, I want to talk about these nails of the cross because I think, that as we look at this sermon this morning, and that's going to be the title of the sermon, the nails of the cross. I want us to focus on something much more important about those nails. I think those nails did more than just nail Christ to the cross. They did some things that were much more important. And that's what I want us to focus on for a few moments this morning. Now, this sermon is a little more different, or a little different than what I normally do. This is more of a topical sermon, but I think a very important one. I want us to begin this morning by starting with the idea that those nails of the cross, they nailed down first the faithfulness of God. That's our first point. We learn about the dependability of God throughout the Bible. The complete dependability of God. And that's one of the things that was nailed down at the cross. Paul told those in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, He said, For all the promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him amen, unto the glory of God by us. Do you recall when Jesus sat down at the well in John 4 verse 7 with the Samaritan lady, and He asked her for a drink of water? In essence, she replied to Him, she said, Why are you being a Jew asking me, being a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water, knowing that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans? You see, the Jews just despise the Samaritans. Over time, the northern kingdom had been taken into captivity over and over, and the Assyrians had brought in different people, and they had intermingled and what they referred to them as, really as being half-breed types of people, and they didn't like them. And they worshipped over on Mount Gerisim and they viewed their religion as being something other than what it should have been. And really, they weren't worshipping God properly. But they just despised those folks and they would go all the way around on the other side of Jordan, onto the eastern side of Jordan, to keep from even going through the nation or the place of Samaria. They would go way out of the way to do that. And so, she was... She was really shocked and surprised as to why they would do that. And then Jesus begins to talk to her, and He said to her, He said, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of Him, and He would give in thee living water." You see, Jesus is making a statement there, and until I began this study, I didn't realize exactly what Jesus was referring to when he was talking about this gift of God. Was he talking about this message or was he talking about this or that? But he uses a coordinating conjunction here, and he's talking about himself. He says, for he says, if thou knewest the gift of God in who it is that saith to thee. The gift of God in who it is that saith to thee. He is talking about Himself. He is the gift of God. Well, of course that's who He's talking about. We can go over to John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is how dependable God is. That He would give His only begotten Son to be able to keep his promise beginning all the way back in Genesis 3.15 when Adam and Eve sinned against God, were cast out of the garden, and he said, I'm going to make it possible that you will be able to stand justified in my sight once again. But that was no easy task. In fact, it was very difficult, wasn't it? Four thousand years, the right tribe, the right family, wars, famines, captivity, slavery, apostasy after apostasy, a remnant spared, and then Jesus coming into the world in Bethlehem at just the right time in history, Galatians 4, verse 4. When the time was exactly right, we can go all the way back to Daniel chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar had that dream of that fearsome image, the head of gold the arms and the breast of silver, the belly and the thighs of brass, the legs of iron, the feet of iron, and partially of clay. That was the time of Rome, and and Daniel said it would be during that time. And of course, then he explained, he said, O king, you are the head of gold. That was Nebuchadnezzar. That was during the time of Babylon. And then, of course, we can look through history and understand that after Babylon came the Medes and the Persians, that was the the, the, the uh, breast and the arms of brass. After the after the Medes and the Persians came Alexander the Great. And that great nation of Greece. They were the, or excuse me, the, the breast and arms of silver. Then Greece was the belly and the thighs of brass. And then Rome came after them, right? The legs of iron and the feet of iron and partially of clay, and that was Rome. And Daniel said it would be during the times of those kings that that kingdom, that, that hand that he saw in that dream in Daniel chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar saw that cut that stone out of the mountain and he, he hit that great image in the feet and crushed it and then it grew into a great mountain and took over the world, that that would be the church? See, that, at that particular time, Galatians 4, verse 4, which when Jesus would come into the world. That's how dependable God is. But it was difficult. Then true to His Word, the death of God's only begotten Son on the cross of Calvary. Romans 8, 32. God spared not His only Son, but delivered Him up for us. How shall He not also freely give us all things? so that we might receive the adoption of sons it is true god is dependable to carry out his promises it is equally as true though he will carry out those threats to those who are not obedient jesus said this john 8:24 i said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins for if ye believe not that i am he ye shall die in your sins you see that's the very first step towards salvation and unless we take those steps into salvation, we're not going to make it to heaven. God is dependable to bring both blessings and the curses that He has promised. I tell you nay! except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Luke thirteen three. See, there are both sides to the sword, right? Belief and repentance. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven, Matthew ten, thirty-two through thirty three. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Mark sixteen sixteen. Revelation two ten be thou faithful even unto death, and I will give you a crown of righteousness. See the nails of the cross They nailed down God's faithfulness. But they also Closed the door on Judaism. That's our second point. They closed the door on Judaism. They took it out of the way. No longer would anyone live under the Old Testament system. That law was done away with, right? Notice what Paul told those in Colossians 2, verse 14. He said, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. The handwriting of ordinances. Well, what could he be talking about? You recall in... Exodus chapters 31 and 32, Moses had gone up on Mount Sinai to receive those Ten Commandments. Not just the Ten Commandments, but the whole law. Those are the ordinances. Well, God had written them down the first time on the stones. Moses had come down off of that mountain, and he heard this great noise, and and they thought it was a war happening. They thought it was a war happening. Moses said, No. That's not a war. That's a celebration. Joshua thought it was a war. So he went down and he saw the Israelites. They had gathered around this golden calf that Aaron had made, Moses' brother. And upon seeing that, he took those tablets of stone and he threw them down and he broke them and of course, he had to handle the situation. But then right back up on the mountain, he had to go, and he had to chisel the next set himself. Those were the ordinances written on stone. But what happened to him? Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. It was something wiped away. It wasn't there any longer. It was gone We're not under that system any longer, right? What was the cross? It was a killing device, right? It did away with the person who was nailed to the cross. See, that system was done away with. No longer in existence. The old law was used. Its purpose was fulfilled. The new law came along and it was done. A law that God has wiped out of the way is no longer in use. The old law was a schoolmaster, wasn't it? It looked forward to the coming of the seed. The seed was Christ, and having accomplished that, it was cast aside. Notice what Paul said in Galatians 3, verse 19. Wherefore then serveth the law? That's a question. Well, what was the purpose of the law? Why did the law? What was its purpose? What did it serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. It was delivered from God by angels to Moses the first time up on that mountain. It was added to make humanity aware of the seriousness of sin. It was to get them to the cross. It was to get people to the New Testament. That's the purpose, right? It was to make us understand the need for a Savior. Well, that was accomplished. It was added until the seed that is Christ should come and provide God's salvation. Now that Christ came, no need for the old law, right? It nailed the door of Judaism shut. What happens if we try to go back to a law that's no longer in existence? Well, Paul addressed that in Galatians chapter 5 verse 4. He said if you try to go back to that law, you fall from grace. You've left that which is superior to go to that which is done away. The nails of the cross nailed together also Christ and His church. That's our third point. Boy, that's important. That is important. I want us to notice some attitudes that exist in the world about Christ and His church. Some people say the church is not essential to one's salvation. Some people say You just join the church of your choice. Some people say that church membership is optional for the saved. Let's look at each of those. If the church is not essential to one's salvation... Now listen, God didn't know about that. God didn't know about that. Luke recorded this, Acts 2 verse 47. Now let's listen to the words of the Holy Spirit. Praising God and having favor with all the people... And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. If one may join the church of his choice, Jesus didn't know anything about that, right? Notice what he told Peter, Matthew sixteen eighteen. He said, I will build my church. That's a singular possessive pronoun. He didn't say multiple churches. He didn't say, your church, my church, their church. He said, I will build my church. One. One church. My church. Not their church. He said, Peter, I'm going to build your church. No. He said, my church. One church. We need to find out what that church is, right? Let's get and be a part of that church. Again, Luke recorded, Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, talking about Peter and the other apostles, Acts chapter 2, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls, Acts 2.41. There is no passage in the New Testament that says anything about joining a church. Everybody was added to the Lord's church upon obedience to the gospel plan of salvation. If church membership is optional, that is not something taught in the New Testament anywhere. When one obeys the gospel, he is baptized into Christ. That's the only way to get into Christ. That's the only way to get into Christ. We want to be into Christ, Ephesians 1, 3, because that's where all spiritual blessings are. Anything outside of Christ is not a spiritual blessing, right? And so, Paul said, talking to Christians, the churches of Galatia, he said, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Now, of course, that being a figurative statement, we can't actually get into the, the literal body of Jesus, but we understand what the body of Jesus is, because Paul said in Colossians 1, 8, 118 rather, he said, And he is the head of the body, The church, right? The church is important. The church is important because those nails were driven into the body of Christ to purchase the church. That's what makes it important. Speaking to the elders in Ephesus, Paul said, Take heed therefore, Acts 20 verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, To feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. The church is important. He also told the Ephesians that Christ gave himself for the church. Ephesians 5.25 Why would the church not be important if Christ gave himself for it? I think anyone who states that it's not important just does not understand the relationship between Christ and the church. It is the most important institution the world has ever seen. The nails of the cross nailed together the blood of Christ and baptism. Let's notice that. Redemption is only found through the blood of Jesus. That's the only way to find redemption. Notice what Peter said, First Peter 1 beginning with verse 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation or your vain lifestyle, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. How are we redeemed? The blood of Christ. That's the only way to be redeemed. John told the Christian, First John 1 verse 7, he said, but if we walk in the light, as He, talking about Christ, is in the light, We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now let's go back to the time right before Christ was arrested in the garden and crucified. He instituted the Lord's Supper. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper. We're going to drink the juice, and the juice represents to us the blood of Christ. Matthew 26, verse 28. As he took that cup and and divided it among the disciples and made this statement, he said, this is my blood of the New Testament. That's a figurative statement. But he's representing what his blood means to us. This is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now I want us to notice three facts that show the relationship between baptism and the blood. The Bible says we're washed from our sins in His blood. We are washed from our sins in His blood. Revelation 1 verse 5. The same thing that Ananias told a praying Saul. Now listen, we need to understand this. Saul had been praying for three days. He wasn't saved. He was not saved. Acts 22, verse 16. And now, why tarryst thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. How do we call on the name of the Lord? can't be through prayer. Because he have been praying for three days. It's through obedience to the gospel plan of salvation. Arise and be baptized, calling on the name of the Lord. Number two, we already mentioned it's through the blood. We have remission of sin. Matthew 26, 28. But it is through baptism that we have the remission of sin. Nailed together. then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sin. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Number three, it was in Christ's death where His blood was shed, John 19, 34 but we are baptized into Him and into His death. Notice Romans chapter 6 beginning with verse 3. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. That's where we come into contact with His blood, right? If we're going to come into contact with His blood that was shed for many for the remission of sins, we have to be baptized into His death. The baptism in the blood was nailed together on the cross by those nails. Romans 6, 3 and 4. Therefore we're buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The nails of the cross have joined baptism in the blood of Jesus. No person can pull those nails by removing baptism from God's plan of salvation. Jesus said this, Mark sixteen sixteen, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Now, that's a very important statement. Now, what the reader learns here is two very distinct things. He learns first what to do to be saved, and then he learns how to be lost. If You want to be saved? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. What if I don't want to be saved? He that believeth not shall be damned. So we're talking about two different things, aren't we? Let's be saved. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Those who don't care, those who don't want to be saved, all they have to do is not believe. Notice how Peter explained it. He explained to us exactly what baptism does for the person. 1 Peter 3, 21. The like figure, or the same example... Whereinto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. When we go down into the watery grave of baptism, we're not taking a bath. We're not washing away the physical dirt. We're washing away the spiritual dirt. He says, Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It washes away the sins of this life. It gives us a clear conscience. It takes away sin. That's what baptism does. It takes away the sin, puts us into the body of Christ, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Adds us to the Lord's church, Acts two forty seven. Puts us into the body, makes us a member, gets us on our way to heaven. What a wonderful thought. Finally, the nails of the cross nailed closed every other way. That's our final point. The cross is the only way. We sing a song that says this. I must needs go home by the way of the cross. There's no other way but this. Jesus was clear. John fourteen six, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Luke said, Acts four twelve, neither is there salvation in any other. For there's none other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. We're not going to get there any other way. The nails of the cross guaranteed us If we want to get to heaven. We've got to get there through Jesus. It's clear. Only one way to heaven. Doesn't matter how many people get together and say we're all going there. We're just going different ways. There's only one way. Only one way. The Bible has revealed one door. Notice what... Jesus said John 10 verse 1 verily verily I say unto you he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold but climbeth up some other way the same is a thief and a robber now it's difficult it's difficult to examine oneself but it's necessary isn't it 2 Corinthians 13:5 after all the goal is heaven the goal is heaven The Bible emphasizes the designation of one in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Paul told the church in Ephesus, he said, There is one body. Now what's the body? That's the church. One spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. You see, God has provided the necessary information. Because of his great love, he wants all people to be saved. First Timothy two four. Here's what the nails of the cross did. They did more than just nail Jesus to the cross. They nailed down the faithfulness of God. They nailed closed the door of Judaism. They nailed together Christ and His Church. They nailed together the blood and the baptism, and they nailed closed every other way. Are they enough? Is that enough for us to nail it down? our conviction, our conversion, and our commitment. It needs to be, doesn't it? It ought to be, and it should be. If you're here, you've never obeyed the gospel plan. We talked about faith, repentance, confession, immersion in water for the forgiveness of sin, and faithful living. Do that today. We don't have to leave here not, not in a covenant relationship with god on our way to heaven if you've done those things and you've been become unfaithful come back to him today allow the angels of heaven to rejoice over one sinner's repentance coming back to god and let the 99 just rejoice as well If you need to answer this lord's invitation do that as we stand and as we sing